why do we keep instilling this ideal of what what a perfect male body should look like? Mm-hmm. And how do we not stereotype individuals by race or class or or anything like that and how that affects our body images and how we harm ourselves because we want to fit into a mold. Hello and welcome to Out Loud. I'm your host, Greg Thompson. And that was our guest, Lee Cato, who offers his reflections on the role body image plays in the LGBTQI community and how we can begin to seek out the divine in one another. A bit of background on Lee is that while he while studying pre-med at Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina, Lee began to realize that his call to helping others had less to do with medicine and more to do with ordained ministry. As a gay man now seeking ordination in the Presbyterian Church USA, Lee currently serves as a supply pastor for local congregations in Middle Tennessee. He's also in his final year at Vanderbilt Divinity School, pursuing a Master's of Divinity, and his gender pronouns are he, him, his. Until somewhat recently, the Presbyterian Church did not ordain LGBTQIA-identifying folks, and so Lee's role as a minister opens up a conversation of how to serve people in your community who may disagree with you or may disagree with your entire identity. All this and more on this episode of Out Loud. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, good to be here. Uh, so I want to start by um, asking you a question that I've been asking a lot of folks um, out, out the gate is, what does being gay mean to you and how did you come to identify with that? It's a big question. I know. Um, I think it's always been something that I have never, I've never really saw as the sole thing that defines who I am. It definitely enhances who I am and has allowed me to really experience life by, for one, coming out to myself as gay, which was a whole big process, a year, year and a half of just me trying to figure out and actually say it to myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember saying it to myself and then a week later I had a really good friend who was very supportive the entire time and we were taking a study break and she wanted to go smoke a cigarette. And I was like, let's go smoke a cigarette on the balcony. And she was like, Lee, I have something to tell you. And I already knew what was coming that she really liked me and all this kind of thing. And, and she wanted, she wanted us to date. And basically I said, well, I can't, I can't do that. And she was like, what is wrong with me? Like, what's wrong? I was like, well, you're not a, you're not a man. That's one thing that's wrong. And she, and she, her face, her eyes got really big and, and she was the first person I came out to. And that's how I came out to her. And looking back on it, it was very fitting because it was very nonchalant. It was very not matter of fact. It was basically just telling her and being honest with her. And, and that's just how I've, and that's how I continued to do that, continue, continue to tell people in ways that 
was not that was more nat in a natural kind of way um and went by gut and so yeah it's been a long and it's still a process i would say um coming out to me has never been a one one time deal it's a continual process for me and so i wouldn't say that identifying as gay solely defines me as a person i would say whenever i came out it helped me figure out my entire being i would say and i came out in college and was surrounded by a lot of supportive people being that it was a town in the middle of nowhere south carolina can you tell me about that yeah it was i'm not going to be the stereotypical um gay person from the south rural south story because i absolutely loved my childhood and i love where i'm from and love my family we had we have a massive family um and I grew up around all of them. My dad's brothers and sisters live very close to one another. And so I grew up being very close to my family. And I, I was raised very conservative, which did, in the future, did cause some problems for me. But it was always the theology that caused the problem. It was never the fact that my family never supported me or didn't love me because they've always been that way towards me. And so that's something I'm very grateful for in that whole kind of fundamentalist way of, or conservative fundamentalist way of thinking about theology and God to have that support still. And church was always a, a huge part of our lives. We all went to the same church. I grew up Presbyterian, but in rural South Carolina, it may as well have been a Baptist mixture of Southern Baptists and all kind of Baptists. It was not Presbyterian. I later learned when I went to college, it was very different. Growing up, not really being told that gay people were going to go to hell or things like that. That was never explicitly said, or I don't remember it. But you just, you're just raised around people who say it. You don't, I never heard it in church, but I always heard it from maybe family members or people who we knew, family, friends. And so it was just in the culture. It was never really said in the pulpit. And, but even that, knowing that I went to church with these folk and that was really hard for me to kind of grapple with. So once you went to college, you were studying, you were doing pre-med. Mm -hmm. So what was, um, what was that time like for you? Yeah, it was a, it was a, I loved college and it was a great time of exploring and sciences came first. I was expected to go to college and be a doctor. That was, that was what people expected of me. And so that's what I did. And so ministry was in the background. And when I started kind of exploring maybe being a doctor is not something I want to do. Maybe ministry is. At the time, it was not a possibility. Presbyterian Church didn't ordain gay or lesbian ministers at that time. And so that was also put on the back burner. And so 
not only was like my faith in crisis, my like career was in crisis, so all these things. And looking back on it, I handled it really well. Um, <laughs> and so during that time in college, that's what I learned to do. And ultimately did an internship at a free clinic, worked with a lot of people who had HIV, worked with a lot of people who had diabetic issues. And many of them had religion, religious backgrounds and really loving the interactions with patients and also really finding it life-changing to not care for just their physical needs, but also their emotional needs and sometimes their spiritual needs. We had individuals who were diabetic and possibly going to lose a limb and we did a lot of emotional care and pastoral care that looking back on it, that was pastoral care that I really wanted to do. And so whenever I did that internship, it kind of changed my focus a little bit, not so much on the sciences, but on some kind of care, some kind of emotional, um, spiritual care. They all, they do say that doctors and ministers have a lot of things in common. Um, Mm. Mm-hmm. There is a care aspect. There is a pastoral aspect if you have a good doctor. And so it was It was a, a different, it was a very quick turn around from what would have been a very profitable profession, but also a profession that I learned would have been really difficult for me to handle, especially when it comes to insurance and the healthcare system in this country in general, I feel that it would have been really hard for me to, even if I had made it that far to even stick with it. And so from like a moral level or on a moral level, I would think, yeah, I think it would have been just way too, too much for me to kind of be a part of a system that is broken. That needs to be, changed dramatically and I I worked I did another internship at another hospital an actual hospital when I was an undergrad and we had to turn people away and that was not something I could do I could not just allow whether someone had insurance or not to keep them from getting the mm-hmm. care that they need and came to realize that my calling was not to be a doctor that one day I would do ministry work and I would just have to wait for the church to allow people to get ordained, gay and lesbian people to get ordained. And so I did, I waited and worked on organic farm and did a a volunteer year here. And after about three years of it being passed three or four, well, maybe about five years of it being passed, I decided to finally go to school. So tell me a bit about what you're studying at Vanderbilt and what kind of what what you're focusing on in your degree. Well, I've kind of been all over the place when it comes to focus. So I am getting a master's of divinity, so I plan to go into to ministry of some sort. I'm doing the ordination process in the Presbyterian Church, USA. There are many Presbyterian churches, but this one is the PCUSA. Okay. And 
originally really loved campus ministry, and that's one of the things that pushed me to go to to divinity school. And now, I love working with young adults because I think the church is, we always say the church is decreasing, but I think it's transforming in some ways, and I think young adult voices are very important to figure out where that is going. So I love working with young adults still, but I think the more that I study and the more that I've been at Vanderbilt Divinity School, the more I have, my interests have widened and diversified a lot. I'm a musician, and so I really love how how music and the divine can interact with one another, but also how we can find the divine in our secular music. I don't write Christian music. Mm-hmm. I grew up on Christian music and absolutely love it and still kind of listen to it. <laughs> I don't tell that to a lot of people. Like guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasure. Christian, definitely. Christian rock. Avalon. I don't know if I can say that. Avalon is my jam. <laughs> and so I grew up on that and really yeah. loved it, but... I, I don't write music that is specifically for a Christian audience. I, it is more of, not I don't want to say inspirational because that sounds kind of cheesy, but it is kind of like that. And so really have found a new love for music in that sense being at the Div School. And so I've written a lot this year, which was really fun for a couple of classes that I got to do. And also have really gotten into to really looking deep within the LGBTQI community itself and how and how the community can better itself, I think has been a new thing that I have really be- become interested in and how and how people of faith, and how religious leaders, ministers, pastors can help change that community because it can be such a welcoming place. It can be a a very life-giving space, but I also think there are a lot of factors that are harming it, especially from within. I mean, just like anything, but I'm really looking now into how race and class and body image have affected the development of the LGBTQI community and how it still is going on now and and how this community can change within to be a better and welcoming community for people of all races, of all class, of all stages of sexuality and gender identity, how... How this community can be more inclusive because I have seen the effects of it being exclusive and it's very harmful for people who are trying to find a place and who are who have been kicked out of their their place and are trying to find a new place. So I have deep respect and love for the LGBT. QI community because I mean obviously I'm a part of that community and it has been 
a very life-giving thing for me, but it's also been something of, it's also been a community that has in some ways been very negative for me. And so how we can change that and how religious leaders can always seek to change things. We always, Presbyterians always say that we're reformed, but always reforming. So always looking into ourselves and saying, how can we make this better? How can we address racial bias within our community? Because it's definitely there. How can we address LGBTQI folks who are poor, who are homeless, who are not able to, um, who don't have the things that people need to live or those who are differently abled, those who have HIV, how Mm -hmm. those stigmas are still so instilled in the community and how, and now how with, I've known a lot more people who are gender nonconforming and where did they find a place? I know that's been very difficult for a lot of individuals who are gender nonconforming. And so, how do we really think about and reform this community to make it even more inclusive? Mm-hmm. And body image is something that I've really focused on and probably will focus on for my thesis in school. And specifically, I focused on gay men in this specific thesis that I wrote about and how... A lot of, a lot of, not a lot, but many individuals who have eating disorders who are men are gay, who they identify as gay, and why that is, and why do we, and and why do we keep instilling this ideal of what what a perfect male body should look like, Mm -hmm. and how do we not stereotype? individuals by race or class or or anything like that and how that affects our body images and how we harm ourselves because we want to fit into a mold and I am a victim of it and I know a lot of people who are a victim of it and with the rise of social media it has become a it has become easier for ads and things like that to put up the ideal body image of a of a man absolutely and this is what we need to look like to be attractive and to for people to be attracted to us. And so how can we as as faith leaders think about that and how can we change that when we when we as faith leaders profess that we are all made in the image of God that we can't contain that image and how and how that is just harmful to us and how do we deal with those biases in our own community and so and and if we can deal with that in the lgbtq community how we can help other people deal with it as well Mm -hmm. um i mean we are a community made up of people who have been marginalized and who are different and if we cannot look into ourselves then i think that's if we can't do that, then I 
then it would, I wouldn't say I would lose hope in the community, but I would, I would be very disappointed that if we cannot address those issues because nobody's immune to that. Um, no community is immune to just no community is immune to, to racism or classism or ageism is another one Mm -hmm. or body image. Like we're not, we're not a romanticized community. That's all rainbows and sunshines. And I think that, with looking into those issues, it can help the community and allow us to really understand what's going on and how we can really be an inclusive community, as we say we are. So That sounds like the response of a pastor right there. Yeah. Um, looking at your congregation, your flock, your people, mm-hmm. and saying, okay, this is what we stand for, but then there are these other things that are going wrong and how are we going to, how are we going to uphold our values in these scenarios as well? Mm-hmm. Something I, I noticed from working at a church for a little while. So that's something, I mean, any community, a faith community or the LGBT community um, can kind of get caught up in, in, um, in, in whatever's going on and, and lose sight of the bigger picture or, um, or need to kind of course correct a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's the role of the pastor to kind of come in and say, this isn't okay, or we need to talk about this. Mm-hmm. We need to say what's not being said here and bring it out into this committee meeting or into this congregation, mm-hmm. into the pews. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's so interesting. And even in the progressive churches in town who are very open and welcoming to, to LGBTQI folks, and I'm very grateful for them, but in my experience, it is it is a welcoming with a list of criteria that mm. you have to look the way we do. You have to kind of blend in, or you're either tokenized as the gay couple in the church. And so what does that mean for opening and welcoming communities who are faith-based Um And how we can really delve into it a lot deeper because it's more than just saying, it's more than just using words and saying that you're a welcome, but actually being intentional and saying, what does that mean? And, and a lot of it has to do with going out and meeting people and asking, what do you need to to feel this way? I always say that, I mean, we a lot of churches say that we welcome people, but it's, I think we're called to go and be welcomed by other people. And that is our goal is to, as ministers is not to lure people into our church and say, you're a welcomed. And, but our job is to get out and, and be welcomed by other people. And so what does that mean in faith-based organizations who are, who say they're opening and affirming but to a certain extent. And that means there is still some form of, I say evil in, in a, in a, in that and saying, well, you have to conform to what we're doing. You have to play by our, by our rules. And we see it. I love the, can I mention Jack drag race? Yeah. Okay. 
I didn't know if we'd get sued or whatever, but I've even noticed <laughs> We could talk about yeah. pop culture references yeah. cool. all day. <laughs> well, I even noticed it. So me and my partner are big fans of Drag Race, which was a whole other process for me. And that <laughs> process as in like I was so I have a very huge fear of clowns. Okay. <laughs> and and that's just for me growing up being very tormented by one clown and it kind of ch- changed my life. And so drag queens in some instances, some of them are very elaborate and reminded me of that and kind of um, triggered some yeah. things. But through slowly accepting this show <laughs> at a like the show's great because I see them at a distance and now I go to their shows and things like that but but i even see how in there beauty is seen in such a narrow way they talk about pretty queens and like a lot of times it is it's just this way of thinking about beauty that still is instilled even in a drag community like what it means to be pretty and and that's really surprising to me how we how there are men who are literally dressing up to imitate and to show their art through transforming themselves into looking like women but are doing it in their own way but then are still judged by how pretty they are and what that means so that that's another thing that I have noticed even in that pop culture reference is that what is beauty and why is one, one of those Queens more beautiful than the other? Like, what does that mean? And so even to judge on that is it's a great show and I watch it and it's addictive (laughs) and it's awesome. But if, if you step back and you think these are, these are, these are people who have gone through a lot to do this with their lives to not only be gay men, which a lot of them are, and to then have this as your art and have this as something that you develop that is also misunderstood by a lot of the population as Mm. drag is. But then adding that layer on, well, I'm going to judge you based on how pretty you are. But that's not the true point of any of why someone does drag, which is very interesting to me. And that's another thing. It goes back to that body image. It goes back to beauty. It goes back to what is... What are we cultivating in our community that says this is pretty? And, And there... And I also see a little racism in that show, too. And... This season, they actually hit on it a little bit. And I really enjoyed the Vixen, who is a drag queen, has started a drag show that is all drag queens of color. And this is what they do. It's like the Black Lives Matter of the drag community. And finally, really brought it to light a little bit as to how people, as to how racism does play in that community as well. There was even a something mentioned about the Vixen. She's from South Chicago. And somebody said that that the Vixen is basically tarnishing the drag community because they're from South Chicago. Um, and that to me is disheartening 
but it's also very awesome to see that that this drag queen is starting has started and it's been going on for a long time that drag show to to say that there is racism in this community and we need to we need to deal with it and talk about it and it's not something that we're not a immune to and that's just a one pop culture reference i could name many (laughs) that i have issues with um when it comes to that to to our community but um but that being said i'm not downing it i'm very sure uh, (laughs) i'm very grateful to have individuals in this community for support but because i have such a love for it it's the reason why I constantly want to see it being challenged and being changed because I think for the better and to help people who don't fit the molds that this community to adhere to still, um, can find a place. Yes. And everything you just said, I, I would apply to in my own journey, how I feel about, the Catholic church, like how can we, um, how, like we have this mold for what it means to be a certain Catholic, or you can apply this to a lot of churches for what it means to belong, to be baptized within this tradition. Mm -hmm. And how do we welcome other people? How do we not have these barriers up? I mean, it's, it's a challenge for every community regardless. Yeah. And that's what we, I mean, that's what humanity does. We, we put up barriers, (laughs) even in places where we say there aren't any. And that is, and to me, that's the most, that's the most harmful ones. I almost would love if it was just blatantly said, like, here is a barrier. This is what you fit in. And it would be a lot easier. But it's hard, it's harder to have a community that is founded on inclusive, inclusivity, but then not address things that are obviously there. And yeah, and that's the, that is the hardest one. And the church, I mean, sometimes they blatantly say it, this is what you can do and not do, but there are a lot of churches who don't and those lines are blurry too. And so, yeah, I think those are the hardest ones for me to take. And I think that's why I'm also very passionate about this type of work is that it is, it needs to be brought out. And it needs to be addressed. And if we can come out of the closet, we can surely address the things that need to come out of the closet. And I always say the the LGBT the LGBTQI community has things in their closet that it needs to come out to. Yeah. So, and I have found that it's my calling to to bring them out um, because people are getting hurt by them. People are coming into a community expecting support that they're not getting, and that's really harmful. And they're they're told to be that you need to look a certain way, and it it's and it's not healthy. I've been affected by it, and still do it. Mm-hmm. I still do it, and that is and that is a lifelong damage for individuals and i don't know if not everybody has that experience i know but there are some people who do and it is it's very 
life changing in not so good ways. So, yeah. What 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 has been your experience of like, of the local community or or just or the LGBT community in general that you've been a part of? Um, how, are these issues that you've experienced yourself? I would say here in Nashville, the the people who I've found who have been really supportive of me, I've met through church, which I've found a great church in town that's very. Uh, supportive but through people through people in church and just randomly you meet people who are awesome and who are great and who are very supportive and I have found some support in the LGBTQ community but I will say that body image has always been an issue for me it's always been something that I have struggled with and growing up I was I was a lot heavier than I am now I think at my highest I was 275 and in high school and in high school it's where I started there was a thing called dlist.com it was way before your time they shut it down (laughs) it was one of the first gay community online things Mm -hmm. and so you get introduced we got the internet and things just started getting weird (laughs) and so i got on d-list and really saw other community other people in the community guys in the community very fit very thin um just what we would think of as stereotypical and I dropped a hundred pounds in high school because that is that was the image that I that people gave me mm-hmm. uh, that I that I found. And like I said before, I was raised where we there are probably gay people in our community, but we were never exposed to anything in that community, and so we didn't have anything to go off of. And so, and so I remember the day I was like, I'm gonna lose weight, and dropped a hundred pounds and became underweight Mm. and became so obsessed with keeping my weight down to a certain number on the brink of probably some form of an eating disorder, not very extreme, but I would say like I kept, I was obsessive about my weight up until probably up until I came out and then that kind of slowly trickled trickled off. But I would say that for me personally, it had like the body image issue has really has really affected me to the point to where I I am very self conscious about how I look, and not so much anymore now having a partner. But even now, I still am very self conscious about how I look and uh, partly because of how the LGBTQI community has said, this is how you need to look. Mm -hmm. And this is how, this is what you need to look like. You need to look like this underwear model on all these ads that Mm -hmm. you see Um, with all these apps now like grinder and whatever else, (laughs) all the ads are like these really buff white men. And it's so, and that is the image we've been, that is the image that we have. And so it does affect some people. Yeah. Um, go to the gym. There's so many, 
I've met so many gay people at the gym more than any other place. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. is, and to me, that's, that's something we need to wake up to. We all, there's a stereotype, like the gay men go to the gym. Right. And I was like, there's a reason for that. Like that is a, it partly is this body image that we have instilled in this community and it's not healthy and it's not healthy for, for physical reasons. And it's definitely not healthy for emotional or spiritual reasons. And, and that to me, that is like a personal thing that I have had, um, issues with. And it's one of the reasons why I am so passionate about it because I know how awful it can be to be judged by a picture, a little, a little picture. Um, and it's and it can do a toll on you, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I um yeah, I definitely feel that in the culture. You're right. I think it's it's good that you're you're bringing it up. Um It's not hard to hear a lot of the times, I don't think. Yeah. I I think it's I think it's important though because, you know, coming back to the faith piece, like and this is something I've always wondered when when I've thought about kind of my own self-image, body image, or the images that we're fed in our social media feeds, um, is this, you know, what does it mean to be, to be judging a picture so harshly? And, and then what does that say about my view of, of, of God's creation of other people, not just of other men, but of other men that God created? And am I, Am I telling myself I need to be attracted to certain types of men or certain types of people that God created because this feed is telling me? Or am I telling myself even worse that I need to look a certain way because the body that I've been given isn't good enough for some reason? I mean, that, that's that's a negative way to experience yourself, but that's also a, a, a negative, a pretty negative theology mm. as well. Yeah. And I also, and we're all... I feel like a lot of the times, not everyone, but many progressive Christians, we're always scared to talk about sin and evil in the world. And I think about sin and evil at very societally and very systematically in which there is evil in and sin within systems that tell us that we are not good enough and we do not, and our bodies are not good enough. And the creations that God has created is not good enough. To me, that is that is what evil is. That is what sin is. Mm-hmm. And so how can we Christian how can we as people of faith, not everybody's a Christian, but how me as a Christian and following the teachings of Jesus, how can I name that? And that's one thing that Jesus did was to name the sin and the evil in the world. And it's really hard to hear, especially from a community that has been so, there's been so much negativity towards the LGBTQI community. But on the other end of that, it has also been so romanticized to the fact that we can't critique it much. Mm. And so... There needs to be a balance. There needs to be a balance in saying, yes, this is a great thing to have. But but what a community does, it is also one that looks into itself and is always changing. Mm-hmm. And I think that is 
good theology because I think we're not called to, to be stagnant. We're not called to just let evil in the world take over a community that is divine. I think there is, you can find God in, I think you can find God in everybody, but there is divine within the LGBTQI community and how can we, how can we like let that come about more and not be overcome by systems that put us in this community to begin with um, that we're all affected. And it just shows how deep, how deep these systems are, how deep evil can run in society when it affects even people who are marginalized, we are still affected by it. And so it takes a, it takes certain people in the community, I think, who have been, who have noticed it, but also have been affected by it and who can see it and who should speak up about it. I think sometimes at one point I was scared to say anything because you were scared that the other people in the community were going to be like, whoa, he's down in the community. And I was like, well, I don't want to down the community. Well, <laughs> that's just, it's, it's being, it's, it's crippling it in some ways. Yeah. Um, I don't want to use that language, but it's hindering it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, well, it's tough to, I think, you know, you say being down in the community. I feel like we say this, this phrase LGBT community, it's this nebulous thing. I mean, it's yeah. who like, you have your LGBT community right. as, as in like your group of friends that, you know, I have my LGBT community, but like who, <laughs> you know, it's kind of that it's like the small lowercase C church and the uppercase C right. church. Like what is, um, you know, what, what's best for the quote unquote community. Right. Um, and we're all different. Yeah. Uh, a gay person, my, and your experience is different. And my experience is different from someone who's trans or who's non-gender conforming mm-hmm. or who's a lesbian. That's, they're so different. And, and also how do we like hear those voices too? Um, like specifically people in the trans community who, who need their voices heard, especially those trans individuals of color. Um, and I think those voices are starting to be heard in the community because they're getting louder and louder. And yeah. and that has also, and that will also help the community as well, I think. What are, um, what are some good resources for folks that you've found with regard to, say, you know, self-image, body image, I mean, like, kind of, because I feel like what you're hitting on almost is, like, what spirituality might look like for folks in the LGBT community, but that is so fragmented. Right. What, what, what do you, what have you found that's useful that's out there? What I've found that has helped is really getting out of your comfort zone, even in, even in, your LGBT community. I'm going to start saying that now. I'm going to steal that from you. (laughs) Even in your LGBT community, because they're so different, it was really hard for me to say that I was gay because I knew a lot of people 
who were very different than I was. And I was like, I, that's not, that's not who, like, that's not who I am. Um, yeah. And I think that is the best thing that we can do. The best resources are each other and to actually have intentional conversation and not, and it not be some fluffy, uh, we love you. I mean, say we love you, but also in love, you get to know someone. That's mm-hmm. that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, loving is knowing people. And so I think that is the, the main thing we have to do. Because if we continue to just let it, if we continue to romanticize it, it's not going to, it's just not going to serve the purpose, I don't. I don't think. Um, But at the other end, if we continue to be so, so closed off, especially to those who even find our way of life sinful, that's another conversation we have to have. Mm -hmm. So that at some point we have to talk to those people, especially I do. I'm going to be a pastor or whatever ministry I'm going to be in, I'm going to talk to people who's not going to like it. Yeah. And so what is what does that look like? Because we are also exclusive in that way. Some people need that. They need the safety. They need the help. They need to be healthy. Right. right. And some people should not ever go back to where they came from because it might be dangerous. But for those people who who have that capacity to do so, I think not doing it is can be harmful too um and that's a big challenge for people and it's a big risk for people and but we always i always say that um me being christian discipleship is is risky and -hmm. it's not safety um and so i think that's i think that's what we need to do we have to be a little bit risky to change things. Yeah. Yeah. And brave. I think, I think it's, I think that that piece is something really easy to push off is to say, okay, I know this group of people probably doesn't approve of my lifestyle or I think they do. Who knows? Maybe their politics say they might not. And it's so easy to just kind of push that off and say, I'm not going to deal with that for now, for this year, for, ever (laughs) and you know i feel the same parallels in again like in the catholic church of um a lot of a lot of times um priests will preach about confession that way as it's like something that's really easy to just kind of push off and it's it's good to kind of put your cards out on the table and say here's where i'm weak here's where i'm not doing so well right now and to just ask for help and and that can be um, and not at all to equate confession and, and sinfulness with LGBT lifestyle at all, but to, um, to be totally authentic and open about who you are in front mm-hmm. of someone else. And to just have a conversation is what's at the heart of both of those things. Right. And it's so scary, but it's so important to build that bridge between right. one another. Yeah, I think just reiterating that community is about is about knowing people and is about knowing people who are different than ourselves and i think that is what 
that is what I think of as the church, and that is what I think of as the kingdom. Is uh, and we just celebrated Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down, and it united a bunch of different kinds of people. They could hear their language in the disciples' voice, and that was the founding of our community. Was a bunch of people from different places coming together and honoring those differences, but also knowing that we are a community and that is, and to remember that is how we were formed. Me being a Christian, that is what I hold on to when I think of community. Pentecost is one of my favorite days to celebrate because that is the birth of a church, but it's the birth of a church that is made up of a multitude of people of all kinds and shapes and colors. And that is what I hold to as a person of faith. Mm. Oh, well, thank you, Lee, for joining us today. Thank you. That's great. For a list of resources, terms, and anything else we talked about today that might need some explaining, check out our show notes in the episode description and online at outloudstories.com. And if you'd like to follow Lee Cato online a little bit, check out our links in the show notes where you can follow him on Instagram, check out his music on SoundCloud, and listen to a podcast he co-hosted in 2017 called Breaking Church. Pretty cool stuff. Our show this week was co-edited by both yours truly and the fantastic Meg McKellen. We have both had so much fun sharing this show together with you, and just it's a blast to work on it together. To learn more about our show, visit us at outloudstories.com, where you can subscribe, join our mailing list, find us on social media, or even leave us a donation if you'd like to contribute to the show. Again, that's all at outloudstories.com. Next time on the show, our season finale, it's a special interview with me. We'll see you back here in two weeks. In the meantime, consider sharing this episode with someone you know as a way to start a meaningful conversation. Thanks for listening.